We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Hello and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. My name is Lauren LaGrasso and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. And today I have a great guest for you. He's one of my broadcasting inspirations. His name is Guy Raz. He's a podcaster, producer, journalist, author, and entrepreneur, best known for creating and hosting some of the most popular podcasts of all time, including NPR's How I Built This, which, if you don't know, is a show where he interviews successful entrepreneurs about their journey to build their company, and it's amazing. He's also known for Wisdom from the Top and The Rewind on Spotify. He's a co-creator of acclaimed podcasts such as TED Radio Hour, The children's program Wow in the World, and he's received awards such as the Edward R. Murrow Award, the Daniel Shore Journalism Prize, the National Headliner Award, and he was even a Neiman Journalism Fellow at Harvard. I wanted to have Guy on the show because he's a deeply gifted storyteller who truly understands the struggles and joys of being an entrepreneur, creative, and what it takes to make the journey. He has so many insights to share on that. I think the most important part of storytelling, especially your own story, is to be vulnerable, to surrender, to surrender your ego. He's also an expert on pivoting and offers up great tips on how to pivot in your own life, even when the odds are against you and you've been rejected. By the way, his new book, How I Built This, is out now and offers incredible, actionable tools for anyone considering taking the leap toward entrepreneurship or creative life. From our conversation, you'll learn why having a child can help you reclaim your creativity, how to focus on your passion when you're in a toxic work situation, how to redefine creativity as curiosity, why he almost quit broadcasting and what made him stick with it, what compassionate leadership looks like, how to know if it's right to keep going when you're in a sea of failures, and the key to truly powerful storytelling. Action-packed and inspiring. Now here he is broadcasting legend, Guy Raz. Guy, I am so honored and so excited to be here with you as somebody who just lives for audio. I always say it's the most powerful medium. It's totally transformed my life, taken me out of my deep depths of depression and made me feel less alone. Thank you so much for coming on the show and for just all that you do to tell stories. Thank you so much for saying that. I I really, um, that means a lot. So I believe that creativity is intricately connected to the inner child. And so I like to trace the lines and go back a bit to our younger selves. And so I'm wondering when you trace the lines of your life and you look at yourself as a younger kid, what would you say was the inciting incident of your creative journey? I actually would say that for me, it happened much later in life. Here's what I'll say. Here's my theory. All children are creative. Every single child on the planet is creative. How do I know that? Because I have them. I have children. <laughs> and, <laughs> and what happens is a child is born, and as they begin to discover the world around them, they're fascinated by it. What's that bug? What's that thing crawling on the ground? What's that? How far is the is, are the stars? Can we go there? How does that car move? How does it work? All of these questions that are just bursting out of children. You know, um, let's draw it. Let's make a let's make a spaceship. We have a, a cardboard boxes. Let's make a spaceship, and then let's sit, let's go to the moon. And what happens is, over time, as we get older, that curiosity. And that wonder and that awe gets knocked out of us. We go to school. We become part of institutions. We make friends and we stop 
thinking that way. There are exceptions, of course. We know who they are. They're these these wild, weird, <laughs> crazy, wonderful people, but but they're exceptions. And most of us kind of conform and become less, you know, not less creative, but I think less wondrous, less awed by the world because we're slightly more jaded. With me, what happened was where I, for me, I rediscovered my sense of awe and wonder and joy and curiosity when I had my first child 12 years ago. Because through that child, I didn't have to be this serious person that I thought I had to be. I didn't have to be, I could be silly. You know, I had to, I had to take him to, to baby and me classes and dance and jump up and down and sing and color. And because that was my role as a parent to model that. And it was so liberating. And so it was like a second awakening. It was a reawakening for me, you know, because as a child and even as a young person, I think we're naturally attuned to being creative. It ha- it's, it's embedded in us as humans. It's in our DNA. And then it gets knocked out of us and we, you know, we have to fight to re- reclaim it over the course of our lives. And of course, we still were able to do creative things. I mean, there's incredible art and music and culture in our world that's that's created by amazing adults. But I think for me, where it really began to kind of reemerge was when I had my my first kid, because in a sense, that was where I I got re-energized and I I kind of really my my career as an audio producer and creator changed because all of these ideas were were coming to me from different directions. And so that really that really had just a, a profound impact on me. I don't think that I am more creative than anyone else. I, I think that we're all we all have this baseline creativity. And you know, for me, like most kids, I loved I, I loved exploring and discovering. I love taking things apart and putting them back together again. I loved building with Legos. I loved Lincoln Logs. I loved arranging and rearranging things. I loved I loved hitting my cassette recorder and hitting record and trying to sing songs into it. All the things that kids experiment with. And I think our role really as adults is to work very hard to make sure that that isn't extinguished in kids when they get older, when they become teens. So a long-winded way of saying how it happened for me. <laughs> well, that's beautiful because you got to rediscover your childhood whimsy through your kids. I think I have a couple questions from that. One, if if we don't have a child and we found that l- luster in us has been diminished, what would be your advice to somebody who's starting to reclaim their creativity? What would be a tactic they can take to start to get back in touch with their childhood whimsy? I think that creativity is something that we often think other people have. Like creativity is this thing that only special people have. I I interviewed Liz Gilbert about this several years ago, and I love her so much because she is so incredibly creative. and. Basically, her definition of creativity to me is so inspiring because it's so achievable. Because, you know, I think there are there are people who are like, I'm not creative. Like I've met people and they'll say, I'm not creative. And I'm thinking, really? You're not creative? Well, how did you how did you like decorate your house? <laughs> how did you choose the the bedding in your house? Like, how did you choose um how to or- arrange your your day or your life? Like There's creativity that it requires creativity. Like everybody engages and practices creativity every single day, every single person you know. And it's just a matter of how you reflect on it and how you think about it. Because when people, when people think I'm not creative, um, they're actually, they're actually kind of fetishizing this idea of creativity that only, you know, you know, only certain people have this ability, you know, concert pianists or pop singers. And what what I loved about Elizabeth Gilbert's kind of definition was that 
we're often told to like follow our passion, you know, go follow your passion. What, what are you passionate about? Go follow that. The reality is a lot of us don't have a very, a distinct passion. Like we're, we're interested in a lot of things, but there are lots of people who aren't who are like, I don't know what my passion is. Like, I don't, I don't, I'm not that into gardening, but I kind of like it. Or I like cooking, but you know, I like Netflix, but you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? What, what she says is follow your curiosity. And that's very different. It's connected, but it's a very different way of looking at it because by following your curiosity, it leads you to unleashing your creativity. And so your curiosity might be, it, it might be things that you like to read or, or things that you like to watch or places you like to go or, you know, conversations you like to have or streams of thought that you follow. That's where creativity comes from. It's from really following, following your curiosity, you know, and we're all curious. We all have questions about the world around us. And so I think that that's really the key. It's not about, I, I don't think there's sort of this magical, this magical thing called creativity that only some people have. I think we all have it. It's just a matter of recognizing it and then, and then following it. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I love your story too, because, and we're going to get to it, but I feel like when you had your greatest success was when you were following what lit you up, what made you who you really are. And when you chose yourself versus what you thought you wanted or what you thought you should want, but getting to your path a little bit, you started at NPR as an intern, you worked there for years, and then you left NPR and went to CNN. And so, and then you came back to NPR and I haven't heard you talk about this. Like, so how did you rekindle the love with NPR and come back to them after leaving? And what did that part of your life look like? You know, I had a very, very fortunate trajectory early on in my career. I was very determined to become a foreign correspondent and, and loved reporting. I loved it. And I'll tell you why I loved it. I am an introvert by nature, which seems weird because I have a show listened to by millions of people and also I do in normal times massive live events. But it's, it is not my natural state of being. I am not naturally charismatic. Like I have found my charisma as I've gotten more experienced um, and, and, and have become more comfortable with it. But, in, but, but like at my core, I'm not – that's not who I am. It's, it's, it's hard for me. It requires a lot of work in part because I'm, a, I'm socially awkward, actually. I'm actually in, in my natural state, a socially awkward person <laughs> and, um, and have a hard time connecting with more than one person at a time. So like I can have this conversation, but for me to have a conversation at a dinner party, like I'm the worst dinner party guest. You would not want me at your dinner party. Because you're a deep listener. So it's hard to be a deep listener when there's 20 people there. You know, you're like, how can I see you? How can I see you? You know, it's a lot. Very hard. I'm the yeah. worst dinner party. And everyone, every, I have lots of people who are like, oh, my friend knows that I know you and they really want you to come to their dinner party. And I'm like, tell them I'm the worst dinner party guest. Like, I will ruin their dinner party. You don't want me there. So, but what really helped me early in my career, you know, more than 20 years ago was, what I discovered was that if you gave me a notepad or a microphone, I could talk to anybody. It was like this invisible shield, this this superhero cape that I could put on, and then I could go talk to anybody. I could go to any dinner party and have a conversation like a maestro, you know, like an an impresario just talking to anybody because I had a notepad. For some reason, it broke through this psychological barrier. And so I loved reporting. I loved it so much. And I wanted to live overseas and be foreign correspondent. And I had this opportunity at a very young age, 25, to become NPR's bureau chief in Berlin, Germany. It was a dream. It was unbelievable. I was terrified, totally underqualified. But it was a weird time in, 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 at NPR when NPR wasn't as big as it is now. And for a variety of reasons, I got the job. And loved it, you know, but I, I had this opportunity a few years in to go to CNN and to be on television and to cover the conflict in the Middle East. And it was, I was lured by the bright lights of TV. I'm very glad I did it. It was a very difficult experience for me. I mean, I, I had went, I'd gone from NPR, which was very collegial and supportive to the, the shark, the shark 
infested waters of television where they're, you know, where everyone around you is like competing against you. They're not, they might be your colleagues technically, but they're actually your competitors, the people you work with. And I was sent to a really divided uh, bureau. You know, there was a lot of tension there between the staffers and, and I didn't, I didn't understand the internal politics. And I was very young. I was 27 or 28. Here I was the correspondent, one of the two correspondents at this bureau covering a very visible conflict, high profile conflict. And it was tough. I mean, I, I was hazed really badly um, there during my time. And it was really tough because I was young. I was by myself. Well, my, my now, my then girlfriend, now wife was, was with me for some of the time. And then she went to the U S for some of the time. Um, and, but it was an incredibly important experience. I mean, it, it, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I, I got to learn this entirely new medium and also learn about myself and learn about, um, how to kind of navigate different people in different situations. So it was two years. It was a really great experience, but I knew already probably a year in that it wasn't for me, that television reporting wasn't for me. And already, I think already a year in, I was back in touch with NPR saying, hey, when my contract is up, uh, I think I want to go back. And that's what happened. Yeah. So, okay. A lot of people who are in creative industries find themselves at some point in a situation that's much like what you described. It sounds quite toxic. And you know, you just come here with like your little dream and your notepad and you're ready to be the correspondent. This is the thing. Yes. Yeah. You're like, how can I help? I want to tell the truth. I want to make the world better. And then someone comes up behind you and just knocks the wind out of you. And so I'm wondering how, while you were doing that, you maintained the love for the craft, even though the business part of it was sucking your soul. It was the only thing that was keeping me going. You know, the, the, the storytelling, the, the, the ability to connect with people and to tell their stories, because it was a reminder that all of those, all of that toxicity and all of that tension and all of the, the bad feelings that was office politics. That wasn't the core of the job. You know, even, in, in, you know, in, over, over the course of my career in, in broadcasting, there are times where you deal with internal politics, you deal with meanness, or you deal with, you know, you deal with petty, petty things that are f incredibly frustrating. But, but what, what has always sustained me has been the work has been going out and doing the work because you realize that once you leave that narrow world that you're used to working in and you go out into the world and you and, and all of a sudden your frame of vision is expanded you understand that what you think is real isn't real it's why this happens a lot of times to people who leave their companies people will work for a company for 10 years and and all they will know is that company and they'll read the trade publications and and they'll think that everyone is up to date and up to speed on what's going on in their industry. But in actual fact, it's a very narrow, tiny sliver of people. And then they'll leave their company and go somewhere else, go to a different industry. And their world opens up. And all of a sudden, they're like, oh, my God, how, how did I not see that that there was this world, that that this was happening too? I experienced kind of a version of this when I... I used to live on the East Coast. I, I used to live in Washington, D.C., which is a wonderful city, and I loved living there. But I would make trips to California quite a bit. I'd go uh, for reporting trips. And I noticed every time I would go to California that there was a very big difference in, the, in sort of the culture around creative pursuits. In, in Washington, D.C., the default answer was no. That can't be done, or not really sure why, or I don't know if that's a good idea, or how, it wasn't the, the the answers, the the questions people asked were were skeptical. When you had an idea or a proposal, it wasn't like I love it, let's do it. It was like, <laughs> mm, how, but how are you going to make that happen? Or how, there was always it was just an incredible force of pushback, and I just kind of got used to that. But then I would make these trips to California, and I'd have conversations with people, and they'd be like. Oh my God, that's amazing. Let's do it now. Let's start right now, which is another extreme version of, <laughs> of that. But 
it was very liberating to me. I thought, God, there's there's a real culture of yes here, which again has its problems too, but it kind of opened my eyes up to a different world, um, and a different way of working and a different way of being. And and so um that that really had an impact on on the choices I made in my career because it it was a reminder that sometimes the worlds we work in and operate in are just so incredibly narrow. And it's important to break out of that world as much as possible. And for me, with reporting, that was my opportunity to go out, interview people, talk to people, meet them. And to this day, it's the same, it's the same thing. You know, I, I have a wonderful team. I love working with them. It's amazing. We don't really deal with – we don't really have internal politics or any of that. We're, we have a wonderful team. But, but again, like the actual interviews I do for how I built this for the book and for, for the show – that's what connects me. That's what you know connects me to the to the love of of what I do. Yeah, yeah. No, that's completely apparent. And I, I mean, I do believe it trickles down. So you're a, clearly a great leader. I love that you have a whole chapter in the book about kindness. By the way, so important. But you'd also talk about pivoting a lot in the book, and you've pivoted several times in your career. You, after many years of being a reporter, a war reporter, you just were downtrodden. You described it on Tim Ferriss's show. I think you said like things weren't getting better. And that was really depressing because you became a reporter to help make things better. Yeah. And at that point, you decided you wanted to go to the powers that be at NPR and, and see if you could host a program. And they said, no, you don't have the right personality for that. And this rejection became a redirection for you. But I'm wondering in that initial moment, how did you recover and not let it break you and decide to go forward and do that fellowship? It's called the Neiman Fellowship at Harvard. Like, how did you, what was the break between the no and then the fellowship? It was time because I was broken and I was feeling like all the passion that I had invested in this career was misplaced. But the reality was what saved me was two things, time and very, very wise advice from a wise friend who strongly discouraged me from quitting at the time because I really just wanted to quit and then just figure it out. And that would have been a mistake because that would have been a rash decision. What what eventually happened with the passage of time, and, and passage of time wasn't that long, it was maybe three, four weeks, was a new determination to regain control over my path. Where I was, what frustrated me was this idea that my, so I think, I think anybody's career or anyone's journey is their own journey. Like to me, a successful life is not a life where you make a lot of money or you know you have a bunch of prestige or fame that's not that is not successful a successful life is if you can say you know what i had a really interesting life i i did some really interesting things i traveled i met really cool people like i had cool experiences you don't need money to do that you don't need to be rich or famous to say that. And in fact, a lot of rich people can't say that. So for me, it was like, I want to do a bunch of interesting things. And the idea that that there were executives or bosses or managers that had so much power over determining what my path was going to be was very frustrating. And I think that that experience really prompted me to think long and hard about how I could take control in some way over my direction and my career. And by the way, I, this is the advice I give to the people on my team and the people I mentor and talk to. I, I, and I've, I've said this to so many of them. I've said, your, your career is your life. And what you do is about making your life interesting. It's not about making me sound better or making my work better, or working for me. And if one day you come to me and you say, "All right, I want to move on," and I and it's happened with with some with many of my producers, I will say to you, "Great, let's come up with a plan 
to get you to where you want to go. And I'm going to turn over every stone to help you get there. I'm going to call every person I can call. It's painful, by the way, when I lose a producer because I love my producers and I love my team. But I also, I also, I can't be selfish about keeping them. I can't be selfish about keeping anybody because everybody, you know, at some point will want to move on or, or, or change or evolve or try something different. Or, or if they do want to stay, they may want to try doing something different within our, our team. And, and so I felt at the time that I had to figure out how to gain some control over the course of my career. And, and so that really prompted me to, to decide that I was going to take a year off. Um, and my safety net was this fellowship I applied for. I applied for a few of them and I got, I got them. So that was really this lifeline. And so ultimately, like, had that not happened, like, like, like had that rejection not happened, I don't think I would be doing what I'm doing today. You know, I, I think it was an incredibly important moment in my career hearing from powerful executives that I was not meant to be the host of, of an audio program, that I didn't have the personality for it, and that I, I didn't have the talent of a traditional NPR host um, to, to pull this off. And it's very painful to hear. And it's very easy to believe that, especially when you're talking to somebody who has experience and knowledge and, and you think they're talking, speaking the truth. But it's a reminder that um, all, everything is subjective, right? And it's, it's also a reminder that we do have the capacity to take control over, just take some control over the path we, we, we want to pursue. And so that really was important. It was a kick in my butt. And so I'm so incredibly grateful for experiences like that. Yeah. They kicked you in the butt. You went to Harvard. You boomeranged back. <laughs> <laughs> and then you became the weekend host of All Things Considered and did amazing work there. Like arguably a dream job, what you've been working toward, right? And then you decide to pivot again and go out and create the TED Radio Hour. So what did this pivot look like? And and this is really when I think from from the outside perspective, you chose yourself. Yeah. I mean, it was very scary. And and I'll tell you this. In some ways, it was kind of like when I decided to leave the news world, because when I left the news world in 2012, that I mean, living in Washington, DC and working for a major news organization and having a quote unquote prestigious job that was like you know being at the top of the uh, you know at the top of the food chain it was it's a big deal in that city and to leave and to go and start a podcast in 2012 <laughs> which yeah. was um like who was listening to that and and by the way a show that didn't exist yet really was you know for me I was like you know what I don't really care I, at the time I thought I didn't feel like I was going to advance in the news side of things anymore. I, I, I you know, the sort of the messages that I, that I was getting from news executives was that I was sort of as the weekend anchor of a, of a news magazine show, like that's, that was it. That's where I was going to be. And I'm restless, you know, I, it's not ambitious. It's restless. I need change every few years. I need to try new things. I need creative outlets. and. I felt like I could, I had kind of reached my limit doing what I was doing. And so it really was, again, it, it was, it was risky, but, but I also was like kind of resigned to the idea that maybe it wouldn't work. And maybe once again, I would have to think about a new career. You know, I was in my, at that time, you know, my mid thirties and I thought, okay, I could still start something new. I could I could go into some other profession maybe if this doesn't work out, and so I left and went to collaborate with TED to work on the TED Radio Hour. It was actually there was actually a show already that they piloted, but for a variety of reasons they they wanted to kind of relaunch it, and I put my hand up to to be the person to to kind of relaunch it and applied for the job, and I was hired. 
And so we launched that show in early 2013, and it wasn't an instant hit. I mean, it took some time, but we really, I mean, we got incredibly lucky. There was this podcast boom that kind of began in 2014, and we were there. We were out in the world and had a really good show, and we're, we're making, we're trying to make a show that was about the human experience. You know, I got, I just kind of got sick and tired of news, of, of the day-to-day news. You know, I, I wasn't. It was hard for me to understand how all of what I was doing was improving the world. Not to say that news is not important. It's incredibly important and ever more so today. But I wanted to see if there was another way to connect with people. You know, news can be stress-inducing in a way that is not always productive. And the TED Radio Hour was a chance to do a show about the human condition and the things that connect us. We all grieve. We all experience pain. We all have the capacity to collaborate. We all have this incredible capacity to be creative. We are empathetic as a species. These are species-wide experiences and and traits. And, and, And only our species shares these traits. You know, there's no other animal on planet Earth that can do all the things and share all the experiences we do. And so that's really how it began. And it was... It was a really important, the most important professional pivot in my life because it it kind of took me out of that skeptical slash cynical news world and put me in a world where I was once again able to recapture my sense of awe by really digging into ideas with some of the greatest thinkers on the planet. And you talk about optimism and how important optimism is for success in business and just in life. You think that optimism can be built. If someone out there is feeling a little cynical, which would be easy to feel right now, there's a lot going on. What would be your tips to start to build optimism in the day-to-day? I think that I'm very careful with the word optimism because I am not blindly optimistic. There are many reasons to feel pessimistic right now. It's a very, very challenging moment in human history, in American history. There are a lot of reasons to feel despondent. And I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that there are days where I'm truly not optimistic, because there are. What I believe in more so is possibility, which is a word I like better than optimism, because possibility means that you still have a clear-eyed sense of the world around us, the world as it is. But knowing that it can get better and that you have some agency in that process, that you can actually make it better in a small way or in a big way. And that, that to me is why possibility is much more powerful than, than just optimism. And I joke that I'm a possibility peddler, and I call <laughs> myself that because I want people to hear hear the shows that I do and think there's a possibility that I can do that too or that I can make a contribution or that I can – it's like it's aspirational and it's, it's, um, it's, a, it, you know, it's a goal. And by the way, the goalposts are always moving, right, which is the beauty of life. There's no – it's not about working hard and reaching a destination and then just sitting back and drinking pina coladas. It would be great if that was what that it was That would about. be amazing. <laughs> you know, and just saying, I've, I've, I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve. I'm perfectly healthy. And I just, I'm going to freeze myself at this point in time and just drink pina coladas for the rest of my life. No, it doesn't work that way because you would begin, the decline would begin instantly. It's a constant struggle. Everything in life is a struggle and it's part of the journey. But if the struggle is, if you understand that struggle is is part of it, you also understand that there's beauty in struggle. I think actually Tim Tim Ferriss has talked about this, which is this concept that if you if you have easy choices in life, you will have a hard life. But if you have difficult choices, if you have to make difficult choices, your life will be much easier. And I, I think that's very true. That optimism, you know, it is a choice. But it doesn't mean that you have to be naive about the reality around you. When I have days where I am sad about the world around me or feeling a little bit despondent, 
I'm still optimistic. I have no choice. We have to be. We have to believe in the possibility of things somehow improving or at least trying to make them better because we still have to move forward and live. And I've got two children and they're going to live a lot longer than me. And I have a responsibility as best I can to leave them in a better situation than I was in. And so I believe that's a possibility. There are some days where I'm more optimistic than other days, but I have to choose ultimately to focus on as much of the optimism as possible, knowing that there are always going to be storm clouds passing. Yeah. And I think it's finding the meaning in them. And I think denying them actually isn't optimistic. Like you're saying, I love the rebranding of it as possibility because that's truth. Okay, let's get to how I built this. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The seed for how I built this was planted in 2008, but it didn't germinate till 2016. How did it finally come to the surface and grow into this beautiful entity it is today? And why do you think it took from that period, like 2008 to 2016, to come out? And how many times was it like knocking on your door? Like, hey, guy, I'm here. Notice me. (laughs) It started to knock on my door around 2014. The reason why it took me so long was because I didn't have the confidence to put it out there. I had to be the anchor of Weekend All Things Considered, and, and I really worked on, on trying to recreate that show at the time. And it was a sandbox. Um, I had an incredible team of producers, and we did all kinds of experimental audio work on that show. And then I had to leave and, and sort of do the TED Radio Hour and, and just see if that was going to work before I felt confident enough to start kind of on the side at night and on weekends, kind of coming up with this concept. But it was always in my head. It was always kind of knocking and saying, well, all right, what about now? What about now? And really, I think, you know, by 2015, it was clear to me that I wanted to do this. And I was determined to do it in any way I could get get it done, whether I was going to independently produce it on my own or collaborate with NPR or what, whatever it was going to be. I was, I was determined. I knew that I wanted to tell these stories. I wasn't convinced that it was going to be a hit or, or super popular. I wasn't, I didn't know. And, and there was, again, justifiable skepticism about the concept. You know, the questions I was getting was, were, aren't there tons of shows like this already? You know, do we really need like another hero worship show about entrepreneurs? I mean, all kinds of things. The, the, the problem is, is that And I've discovered this in life, which is when you have a concept, oftentimes people want to know the exact answer for what (laughs) it's exactly going to be. And the reality is that's pretty much impossible to do because it's you it's and it's a chicken and egg problem because you're describing something. But the reality is the way it's going to be is is going to be considerably different. And how I built this was never going to be about worshiping hero worshiping of entrepreneurs or fetishizing them or it was always going to be a show about human journeys and human narratives and also about failure um and struggle and and heroes journeys you know so it took me about a year to kind of work on it on the side and on the weekends and and i started to do interviews 
basically with with people. I you know I over the years I've been in this business for twenty four years, so I have developed a reputation and connections. And you know a lot of people email me or, or text me and say, "Hey, how do you get these amazing people on your show?" Because a lot of people who listen to how I built this just assume that in twenty sixteen I emerged from space from another planet, <laughs> dropped down on Earth. And then just like started getting all these great guests, but actually this is a an overnight success story that began 25 years ago, right? Um, it's a slow burn. I, I I stood I have stood at the free throw line and shot 200,000 baskets and have missed 150,000 of those baskets, 180,000 of those baskets, you know, until I started to make some of them. So I had some goodwill and a reputation and connections that I had built over. 20 years of being on the air and I was able to call people and start to interview people and just have them. And once I had a, you know, 10 or 15 of them, um, I really had this concept that down that I wanted to put out into the world. And so finally, um, we were able to launch it in, in September of 2016. And, um, you know, I had this plan for the show to make it not just a show, but live events and a conference and a, to build a community around it, because I really wanted to see if we could, you know, if we could encourage people um, to, to, to be part, you know, to be part of a, a bigger community, to be part of something bigger, B building a business, being an, being an entrepreneur is a lonely pursuit. And, I wanted to create a way for people to be part of a community where they didn't feel so alone. And so we didn't un, un, we didn't sort of re, kind of pursue some of these other concepts until about a year in. The first year was just a podcast. But then we started to do live events and then we 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 built the summit that we in normal times do in San Francisco every year with a thousand people. And then we we built out the community and you know, and now there's the book and we've got a, a, another series called the Resilience Series and we have, um, you know, other spinoff ideas that we're working on. And and so it, it wasn't, it was kind of a loose idea, but I think it wasn't like a grand master plan where we knew what was going to happen. If the show wasn't going to work out, if it was going to fail, if people weren't, weren't into it, we would stop doing it. I mean, it was, it, and I think that's an important lesson, which is sometimes things, the, the thing that holds people back is thinking that it has to be perfect and that it has to be a success and what happens if it doesn't succeed. And I really approached how I built this as an experiment and, and right. really as, a, as an experiment. And if it didn't work out, that's fine. I, I'd move on and, and try something else. Yeah. And that's so interesting because how do you know when it's the right time to move on? Like reading your book, reading the Stonyfield story, I, I still have anxiety. Like I don't know if I'll ever recover from reading that. It was so intense. I mean like every sign told him to give up and yet he still found a way to make it work in the end. How do you know if you have a path like that guy or if you should – turn the corner and do something different. I call it a creative crossroads. It's like yeah, either you double yeah. down and go even harder in that direction or you have to do something else. It's a very it's very very tricky and and it's all it's always obviously specific to specific examples, right? It's it's hard to say here is the moment now. I mean with Gary Hirschberg and Stonyfield it, it was like 9 years of, you know, failure after failure before they really turned a corner and then became one of the most important, you know, yogurt companies in the world um, and really kind of revolutionized that industry in the US. I think that with Gary and with a lot of people who've gone through failure after failure after failure, what happens is they in their core understand that what they're making is actually really important, that the world, they believe with their heart and soul that the world needs to have this. And if it doesn't work, if I can't make this work, nobody will make it work. It's sort of like, you know, he he knew that they were producing a product that was very different at the time than any commercial yogurts that were available. The only kind of yogurt you could get like that was homemade yogurt. And they were making it at scale. They were making high, just amazing quality homemade yogurt, but at scale. And he felt like, look, if this isn't going to work, if eventually it, it's clear that we just cannot go on, no one's ever going to buy this yogurt. But he knew that, that that wasn't the case. And he could see even early on, even though they were losing money, 
every year, and they were every year they were losing slightly less money. And even though there were crises, he could still see that there was growth, even though you know the their 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 their, their flow charts were were showing declines in in revenue and profit, and uh, there was no profit. He could still see that there was there were more and more people who were interested in this idea, who who were thinking, yeah, this is. This could actually. This is something that we like. I say this as somebody who has been involved in in many projects that didn't. You know, it wasn't clear what would happen, but we stuck with them. And one example is, I do a kids show called Wow in the World, and Wow in the World is it's a science show for kids. It's, it's a really amazingly fun show. I love it so much. I do it with partner uh, Mindy Thomas and my other partner Meredith Halpern Ranzer, and we have a kids production company producing the show. So I've got two businesses that I've started. That's one. And the other one is built at productions, which does grown up programs. But with our, our kid, our kids show around the world, you know, it is a massive show by kids standards. We have almost 7 million downloads to that show a month, which for a kid's show is enormous. Um, And the challenge with kids shows is how to make them sustainable. And there are ways to do it. You know, you can you can advertise the hell out of it, and you can try and pitch a million toys and products to kids. But we don't want to do that. That's not that's not part of what we want to do. But we also need to pay for the show, and we need to pay the producers who make the show. It's expensive to make, even if we don't get paid much or anything. Um, we have to make it sustainable. It has to be a sustainable business, even though the concept behind it is to bring a science program to kids. So despite the fact that it's hard to to really generate a whole lot of money for it, we know that we know that if we can't make this show sustainable, nobody will be able to. And that's what that's what has and it is sustainable today. But that's what's kind of kept us pushing forward because even at moments where we're like god, it's this is hard. We we knew and we know that this this is a concept that will work. We just feel it in our core, and that's that's what's kept us kept us from, you know, making the show year after year, and we'll continue to do so. That's incredible. I have one final question. You've told so many stories. You've held so many stories. You have an incredible story yourself. What would you say is like the through line to powerful storytelling? And this is kind of a big one. But if you had a thesis statement for your life, like that describes your through line, what would it be? I think the most important part of storytelling, especially your own story, is to be vulnerable, to surrender, to surrender your ego, and to understand that people will connect with you in a much deeper way if you're open and honest about your failings and your low points. Because that's those are the things that we instinctively want to hide because we're afraid about afraid of talking about them, but those are the most meaningful parts of our lives. And to tell the story of your life in a meaningful way requires you to be a generous person. You have to give. And what I mean by giving is you've got to bear your soul because the people who will benefit from your story will truly benefit the more generous you are as a storyteller. When it comes to sort of the thesis of, of my life um, so far. I mean, I'm in my mid 40s, so hopefully there's more of it to go. I, I would say, I would say constantly working on trying to follow his North Star, knowing that he is a flawed person who sometimes has to fight against his flaws to truly be the person that he is at his best. Beautiful. Well, from my perspective, you're doing that. And thank you for enabling us all to think about, you know, the parts of us that hurt, the parts of us we want to expand, and just sharing these incredible stories. I'm so grateful for you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you so much.
Thank you so much for listening. And thanks to my guest, Guy Raz. For more information on Guy, you can follow him on Instagram at guy.raz, Twitter at Guy Raz. Check out his website, guyraz.com. Get his new book, How I Built This. It is amazing wherever good books are sold. And check out his podcast by the same name on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, and please don't be mad at me that I didn't ask him my usual, what would your younger self say to you now and vice versa? I had one of the best storytellers out there with me. And so I had to ask him what powerful storytelling means to him and his life thesis instead, because we were almost out of time. So if I ever get to talk to him again, that will be the first thing I ask. And then he'll be like, well, that was a strange greeting. (laughs) I'm curious what he would say, but... I guess curiosity is creativity. So Guy, I'll catch you next time on that question. Again, thank you so much for listening to the show. If you liked what you heard today, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify. Share the show with a friend and post about it on social media. If you tag me at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative, I will repost to share my gratitude. Also, be sure to tag Guy and let him know what you liked about the show, what your takeaway was, so he can share it as well. You can download my new song, Freak Show, at the link in my Instagram bio or wherever you get your music. Again, thank you, Liz Full, my dear friend, for this show's theme music. Follow her at Liz Full. My wish for you this week is that you can redefine your creativity as curiosity and follow whatever excites you. And that even when the odds are against you or you've been rejected a million times, if you know in your heart that you are meant to follow this path and that you are the best person to solve the problem that you're attempting to solve with your creativity... I just hope that you always, always keep going because that's the main takeaway for me from Guy's interview and from his book is that when it's meant to be, nothing can stop you, even when it just takes years. I love you. I believe in you. And I will talk with you later this week for the check-in. Bye.